Right. Our executive branch is broken. (laughs) Right. Like things aren't really working. And the only thing that kind of gets the gears of democracy activated is truth. Right. Or or information about problems. And so and it has to be really serious to get people motivated to overcome their fear often to say, I I can't live with myself if I don't speak up. Free, free Palestine. Free, free Palestine. Free, free. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance and Alternative News from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam, here today with another jam-packed show, and this one's about war, rumors of war, justice for Palestine, and justice here in the U.S. for Terrence Sterling in D.C., or Stephen Clark in Sacramento. And this weekend, as we're broadcasting in mid-April, Scientists are taking to the streets again for the 2018 March for Science here in D.C. and in locations around the country and around the globe. So we have more on all of that later in the show. But first, our headlines. You could say that the world was put on alert this week after Donald Trump appeared to open the door to World War III with a series of tweets accusing Syria for a suspected chemical attack and telling Russia, which supports Syria, to get ready for an attack by the United States. He tweeted, quote, Russia vows to shoot down any and all missiles fired at Syria. Get ready, Russia, because they will be coming nice and new and smart, end quote. Since then, Trump has appeared to take a step back from the brink and from the rhetoric. In the meantime, no official agency has confirmed that a chemical attack actually occurred. The Syrian government, which was just victorious against extremists in Ghouta, denies any involvement in the alleged attack, which is almost a year after a similar attack was blamed on the Syrian government with no proof, but was followed by a missile attack by the U.S. on a Syrian airbase. More on Syria with Gerald Horn after headlines. Well, with all this talk of war, some members of Congress continue this week to challenge Trump's right to take the country into a military conflict without approval of Congress. Senator Bernie Sanders spoke on the war threat at a rally on Capitol Hill on Wednesday. One of my great fears is that President Trump, either through arrogance, ignorance, or incompetence, or a combination of all those factors, will get the United States into another war. This very morning, Trump was tweeting about his intention to launch missile strikes into Syria. 
And I want to be very, very clear about this issue. President Trump has no legal authority for broadening the war in Syria. It is Congress, not the President, who determines whether our country goes to war, and Congress must not abdicate that responsibility. A broad coalition of social justice organizations, including the Answer Coalition, is holding a rally and teaching against the threatened war with Syria on Saturday, April 14th, starting at noon at the White House and followed by a teaching at George Washington University. This week also marked the beginning of hearings of former CIA head Mike Pompeo for the position of Secretary of State. Activists say they may have the votes to derail the nomination of Pompeo, who advocates military intervention and regime change in North Korea, supports ongoing unauthorized conflicts like the Saudi-led war on Yemen, opposes the Iran nuclear deal, and cozies up to hate groups and Islamophobes. Alan Brooks Lashore, a former diplomat who now works with the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, spoke April 11th at a rally on Capitol Hill opposing Pompeo. American diplomacy is hard enough with this president. Our diplomats do not need a secretary of state who reinforces and goads the worst instincts from this president. And with Pompeo, Bolton, Trump, and Pence, they are the four horsemen of the apocalypse of American diplomacy. The civil rights community opposes Mike Pompeo because he opposes American values. We oppose him because he is bad for American diplomacy, and we oppose him because he is bad for America. Thank you. Pompeo testified on Thursday before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And while the Trump administration was actively tweeting and engaging about Syria, it was silent about the continued massacre of Palestinians by Israeli Defense Forces. For two Fridays in a row, three Fridays including today as we go to broadcast, tens of thousands of Palestinians have participated and at least 30 have been shot in the Great March of Return a peaceful protest leading to the May 15th observance of the 1948 Nakba, or catastrophe. Around that year, more than 750,000 Palestinians were forced from their homes, 13,000 Palestinians were killed, and Zionists eradicated more than 500 villages and towns to seize land and establish the state of Israel. Though ignored by most Western media, hundreds of rallies of support for the Palestinian people have been held around the world. Here in D.C., a rally was held outside the Embassy of Israel, where former CIA officer Ray McGovern spoke, reminding Americans of how our tax dollars are supporting terror. The Israeli terrorist government could not be doing this without the support of U.S. taxpayers, without the support of our U.S. leaders. That is the crime, folks. They couldn't be doing it without us, okay? Now, how does this manifest itself? Well, uh, there's this arrogance. There's this uh, lack of empathy. Uh, There's this criminal attitude manifest when, when one of these think tanks in Washington holds a little seminar on Uh, Israel, Palestine, and Gaza especially. 
And a friend of mine was there, and she was a high official of the CIA, and one of the panelists referred jokingly as to, uh, well, the, the situation in Gaza, well, we have to shoot it up. Every now and then, you have to mow the lawn, mow the grass, and everybody chuckles. <laughs> and my friend said, what is this? What kind of what kind of humanity is this that they would talk about killing people to mow the grass, huh? Evil. And nobody objected. Evil. And she watched this and she saw this and she looked at the panel and guess what? Half of them were citizens of Israel as well as citizens of the United States. And that's why we have to remember the admonition of our first president to avoid passionate attachments to other countries with the perceived identical values, but values that could not be so contrary to our values. In addition to Ray McGovern, there were speakers from several organizations, including the Occupation Free DC campaign, which aims to end participation by the DC Metropolitan Police, or MPD, in U.S.-Israeli counterterrorism police exchanges. According to the campaign literature, for more than a decade, MPD leaders, including Chief Peter Newsham, have participated in trainings with Israeli military and police, institutions which enforce an illegal military occupation over Palestinians. As Amnesty International has documented, Israeli forces are responsible for the police killings of Palestinian civilians, including children, arbitrary arrests and detentions of Palestinians for sometimes indefinite periods of time, and the targeting of human rights defenders who engage in freedom of expression, association, and assembly. The Anti-Defamation League's so-called National Counterterrorism Seminar takes U.S. police leadership to Israel to learn from officials whose practices include racial profiling, violence, and murder against peaceful protesters, political assassinations, and possible war crimes. The campaign is petitioning members of the D.C. Council to support and pass legislation to prevent D.C. police from training with departments that violate the district's Human Rights Act and to support a reformed Office of Police Complaints. Well, speaking of D.C.'s police, Black Lives Matter activists in D.C. held actions to pack the hearings for Brian Trainer this week, the police officer who rolled down the window of his patrol car and shot and killed Terrence Sterling on his motorcycle in 2016. On the first day of the hearing, activists also held a rally in March during which they occupied a busy intersection in the Chinatown section of northwest D.C. And finally, in culture and media, in the wake of this week's testimony before Congress by Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, 
The human rights organization Color of Change is mounting a petition drive to demand that Facebook conduct a full and independent audit into the civil rights impacts of their policies and practices. According to Color of Change and the organization Muslim Advocates, under Zuckerberg's leadership, black users have increasingly found the platform to be an unsafe environment. Beyond the constant stream of white supremacist hate speech on the platform, Many outspoken black activists have repeatedly been banned by Facebook, and they say that this is because of Facebook's own training documents that show a deep misunderstanding of what hate speech is. Until a few months ago, they say, Facebook's documents indicated that white men were deemed a more protected category than black children. On more than one occasion, Facebook has punished black users for stating that, quote, all white people are racist, end quote, as hate speech, but has refused to remove posts threatening violence against Muslims. And even a recent Instagram post by Color of Change about the March for Our Lives and the epidemic of white male gun violence was removed under Facebook's erroneous hate speech rules. The petition can be found at act.colorofchange.org. Also in culture and media, Georgetown University brought together issues of art and activism. Chantel James has more. This week, the Land and Center at Georgetown University gave a two-day symposium, We're in this thing together. The event was designed to facilitate discussion among local activists and artists, as well as those from across the country on the necessity of forming creative coalitions in devastating times, as they said. Keynote speaker Kiyanga Yamhata opened the conference on Monday night in dialogue with Marsha Chatelain of Georgetown University's History and African American Studies Department. Here, Kiyanga Yamhata explains why the notion of race is central to understanding America. In a country founded through the genocide of its native population, that became wealthy through the enslavement of millions of black people, and that then multiplied that wealth a thousand times over through the expropriation and exploitation of immigrant populations. Race is woven into the very fabric of what the nation is. And so, it's the black movement more so than any other in this country that exposes that. I mean, this is why black protest is always unpopular. The civil rights movement was reviled. Martin Luther King was reviled in his time. I mean, there have been all sorts of stories. Michael Moore put something on, on Twitter that when it was announced that King had been shot after a church service that he was at, that half the parking lot exploded into applause, right? I mean, this, this is what this nation is really about. And so this has come up around the parking students and Black Lives Matter. Why are people so receptive to the parking students? Why are these celebrities tweeting that they're going to give the parking students a million dollars? Where was this for Black Lives Matter? And it's like, black protest is never popular because it exposes the central mythology or the central vibe of the United States. Panels on the second day explored the role of arts organizations in these times, as well as race, sexuality, and performance politics. From the campus of Georgetown University, this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantel. 
And finally, finally, a fundraiser is being held to support the 2018 Gaza Freedom Flotilla, which will sail once more against the illegal Israeli blockade of Gaza for freedom of movement and the right to a decent future. Friday, April 13th, 6.30 p.m. at the 5th and K Bus Boys in Northwest D.C. Go to 2018 Gaza Freedom Flotilla on Facebook for more information. And a reminder, the rally and teaching against an attack on Syria begins Saturday, April 14th, noon in front of the White House. And a rally will be held every Sunday at 1230 p.m. in support of the Palestinian people. And now that will be in front of the Embassy of Israel, 3514 International Drive, also in Northwest D.C. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, Gerald Horn joins us. Stay with us. Now for more international news, I'm joined by On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, the author and historian, Professor Gerald Horn. And Gerald, I want to first get your reaction to Donald Trump almost declaring war via a tweet this week, promising missiles that are new and smart to rain down on Syria. Well, first of all, what Mr. Trump is proposing is illegal. Only Congress has the power and authority to make war. Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont has pointed out not to mention illegal under international law, in addition to domestic law, since there's no impending threat, I believe, of Syria attacking the United States of America. But more than that, I think it's heartening that at least thus far, Mr. Trump has seemingly backed down. Perhaps someone briefed him on the supposed August 2013 chemical attack in Syria that the investigative journalist Cy Hirsch pointed out was probably a deed or misdeed uh, perpetrated by the rebels. Or perhaps someone told him that beginning as recently as a month ago, that is to say weeks before this alleged recent attack, Moscow had been warning about a so-called false flag attack. And right. keep in mind that this supposed attack took place shortly after Mr. Trump himself had suggested that the United States would be pulling out, and Moscow had been warning about this same chain of events, that a false flag attack would take place, which would then plunge the United States deeper into this conflict. But I think that there is a larger context for this episode that we should discuss. First of all, there's talk about Britain joining this illegal act in Syria. And keep in mind that Prime Minister Theresa May is under siege herself, not only because of the alleged nerve agent attack that took place in England, but also because her poll numbers have flatlined in light of her mishandling of the Brexit crisis. Supposedly, France is also interested in joining this misdeed. But keep in mind that President Macron himself is under siege because of a rail strike, which has brought him face to face in a confrontation with left-led unions. In any case, the, the wider context of all is that I think that the Western European nations and the United States of America are feeling that they cannot really compete 
unless they have a Yeltsin-type administration in power in Moscow. And right now, Putin is very close to Beijing. They're collaborating on all manner of levels, and so I think the ultimate agenda is regime change in Moscow. And not only that, but Iran is being targeted by Israel. The National Security Advisor, John Bolton, has talked about having regime change in Tehran by 2019 at the latest. Not only that, but the Saudis as well would like to see regime change in Iran. And ginning up a war in Syria, which could bring us to the brink of World War III, seems to be on their agenda, at least as of this moment. I actually saw a report how Angela Merkel of Germany basically stated that Germany would not be joining in any type of military action in Syria and so would not be joining the U.S. and the U.K. if if they went in that direction. And I also saw a report that uh, China is in Syria. And so that really raises the prospect of something, a conflict leading to a, a world war. Well, I think the role of Germany is particularly critical. It's not only that Chancellor Merkel has seemingly stood down from joining into this piratical, proposed piratical attack on Syria, but also when there was this spate of expulsions of Russian diplomats, Germany only expelled four. The United States expelled 60. And I think that if you weigh those numbers, you get an idea of how unsteady the position of the North Atlantic powers are or is, given the fact that Berlin, the most powerful Western European nation, is not on board. I was surprised to hear that China actually isn't serious. So what is their role and presence there? Well, I assume that China has normal diplomatic relations with the duly constituted regime in Damascus. I haven't heard about any Chinese military intervention in Syria, unlike the role of Russia, for example. But raising the question of China brings us to another important matter. I'm speaking of the fact that Mr. Trump has begun to talk about rejoining or seeking to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Recall that during the presidential campaign of 2016, he made a big to-do about pulling out of the TPP. That was one of the first acts he perpetrated in January 2017. But now he's talking about joining or rejoining the TPP. And I think that that's a signal. It's a signal to whatever working class voters voted for him that they got took by this con man. But more than that, I think it's a signal that in some ways China has the United States over a barrel, that his attempt or his discussion about slapping tariffs on China is not going to work out very well. It's not going to work out very well for U.S. farmers, soybean farmers, Washington state apple growers. It's not going to work out very well for Apple, which exports iPhones from China, which now presumably will be hampered, to put it mildly. And therefore, it seems to me that this may be a very telling moment in terms of weighing the respective strengths or weaknesses of the United States and China. And it also points to the fact that the U.S. strategy with regard to China, which goes back four and a half decades ago to President Richard M. Nixon making his epical journey uh, to uh, Beijing, has backfired tremendously. That was a journey uh, in pursuit of an anti-Soviet entente, and the payoff for China was massive direct foreign investment. But obviously that's boomerang because it's basically put China in the passing lane as an exporting giant, a manufacturing giant. 
and a giant that may be on the verge of making Uncle Sam say uncle. And then finally, in this hemisphere, we know that Lula, the most popular politician in Brazil, turned himself into the authorities this week on these controversial corruption charges to begin serving a 12-year sentence. And this will keep him from running for president, where he was the front runner. Uh, Certainly, that is not good news. And in that same category, I'd put the tremendous pressure that Caracas is under right now, the regime of Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. On the other hand, I think that it's heartening that Evo Morales in Bolivia is still holding on. And of course, I'm speaking in the context of the Summit of the Americas that will be taking place in Lima, Peru, within the next 24 to 48 to 72 hours, which Mr. Trump was slated to attend, but which he canceled in terms of his own participation in light of this crisis in Syria. And talking about the Summit of the Americas allows us, of course, to not only talk about Lula, but also to talk about the fact that this month, April 2018, uh, we should expect a change in leadership in Cuba, the first time since 1959 that a Castro has not been at the helm in Havana. His successor, Diaz-Canel, is 57 years old, although Mr. Castro will still play a major role in the Communist Party and in the armed forces. And likewise, elections are going to take place in Mexico within months, and a left-winger is in the lead, not least because of the gross interference in Mexico's eternal affairs by Mr. Trump and his total lack of respect for the government in Mexico City. Well, I'm sure that all eyes are on Mexico. You know, when we first started having these discussions, there were several popular leftist governments in Latin America. And slowly, one by one, they've been picked off either by intervention from the United States, the soft coup against Dilma Rousseff in Brazil. So there's been a tremendous change in the landscape there. So again, all eyes on Mexico, I suppose. Well, I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, the professor, historian, and author, Gerald Horn. And I want to keep mentioning that you'll be here uh, at the end of April, on April 18th at the Real News Network in Baltimore, and then April 21st uh, here in D.C. at Sankofa Books and Video on Georgia Avenue. And I promised myself that I would not announce another one of your events without saying that I will also be at Sankofa on April 28th (laughs) for my new book, Olakun of the Galaxy, which is a poetry and visual arts book that talks about the African spirit for the deepest ocean, honors our ecosystem, environment, and also the descendants of the Atlantic slave trade. Congratulations. Thank you. So thanks again, Gerald. And we'll talk to you soon. Well, thank you.
From Palestine to Mexico! From Palestine to Mexico! Border walls have got to go! Border walls have got to go! Hey, hey! Ho, ho! The occupation's got to go! The occupation's got to go! Free, free Palestine! Free, free Palestine! Occupation is a crime! Occupation is a crime! Uh, right now, I just want to introduce uh, Andrew, uh, a local Palestine organizer um, who is also Palestinian. Hey y'all, uh, just two quick remarks. One is that we are all here because uh, over 30 Palestinians in Gaza, to be clear, not Gazans, Palestinians in Gaza, were shot, were shot over the past seven days. I don't think, I don't know how much everyone realizes how significant it is that this uh, organizing is happening in Gaza, but it's actually a big deal. Palestinians have organized themselves into their respective villages that they were displaced from, and even into respective families, preparing for the idea of return. This is the first time we've seen such large-scale organizing in Palestine in quite a while, so it's a big deal. As you know, where Palestinians tried to organize in the West Bank along the route of the Israeli wall that was being built mostly inside the West Bank, that was violently crushed. So it's a big deal that 20 or 30,000 Palestinians would go to what is called like the no-go zone in Gaza. And for folks who don't know, that area that they're standing in is some of the most arable land in Gaza. And they were forced to basically stop tending to their harvest every year because of Israeli snipers and because of Israeli watchtowers that actually automatically fire on them. And I just want to, I know many people have heard, for example, about Yasser Murtaja, the uh, Palestinian journalist, but also like 13-year-old and 15-year-olds were killed. So 13-year-old Hussein Mahdi was killed and 15-year-old Ala Zamili was killed. And both of them had their classmates actually put photos up of them in their classrooms the day after. So imagine what that's like showing up at class and where your classmate once sat, there's actually a photo of the person. I would encourage folks to sort of go out there and look up the names and get to know the people who are actually killed by Israel so that we don't just make them faceless statistics in Israel's war on Palestinians. That's really all I have to say. Other than that, I really wanted to chant, Lieberman, Dermer, and BB, we'll see you in the ICC. Lieberman, Dermer, and BB, we'll see you in the ICC. Lieberman, Dermer, and BB, we'll see you in the ICC. Lieberman, Dermer, and BB, we'll see you in the ICC. Lieberman, Dermer, and BB, we'll see you in the ICC. Not another nickel, not another dime. Not another nickel, not another dime. No more money for Israel's crimes. No more money for Israel's crimes. Not another nickel, not another dime. Not another nickel, not another dime. No more money for Israel's crimes. No more money for Israel's crimes. Not another nickel, not another dime. Not another nickel, not another dime. No more money for Israel's crimes. No more money for from Gaza to DC. From Gaza to DC. Human rights and dignity. Human rights and dignity. From Gaza to DC. From Gaza to rights and dignity. Human rights and dignity. From Gaza to DC. From Gaza to DC. Human rights and dignity. Human rights and dignity. From Gaza to DC. From Gaza to DC. Human rights and dignity. Human rights and dignity. Let's give a big hand to Amal. Yeah. Yeah.
So I am originally from Jaffa. Uh, my husband's family is from Gaza. And uh, one of them uh, was injured from the first day of the protests, the peaceful march in uh, Gaza uh, towards the siege which made by the Israeli occupation to prevent people from reaching their original occupied lands. Because many people who live in Gaza, they are refugees. And they had forced to leave their homes because of war and because of killing and because of uh, the terror of um, the Israeli army. So they are living in camps. They want to return. Also me, I want to return. I want to go to Java. This is my original city. This is the city where my grandparents were born. And this is the city where my parents also were born. When, when I went to Palestine about six years ago, I have the American passport. The uh, officer on the Jordanian-Palestinian borders. I will not call it Israeli borders. It's originally Palestinian borders. So he saw my passport and then he asked me, where are you going? He saw in, on the passport that my father was born in Jaffa. I said, I may go to the Jer Jerusalem and Jaffa. So he got very angry and he threw my passport on the ground. And then he took the passport and disappeared. He let me wait for six hours. Six hours I'm waiting, asking for my passport. And it, this is American passport. Mm -hmm. So he didn't respect the American passport. He didn't respect my wish to see the city of my grandparents. Their house were there. My parents, they were forced in 1948 to leave Java because, to leave Jaffa because of the war and because the massacre which happened in Deir Yassin. All the families around, they heard about the massacre in Deir Yassin and they were very scared about their children because what they heard that the Israelis are killing everybody. They killed the whole like uh, people, they were living in their Yassin. Even the pregnant women, they cut their tummies. They brought the children, the babies, out of their tummies because they want people to live. They want to everybody like to die because because they want to steal the land and they want to steal the houses. So it's a terrible crime and. We feel that the whole world is not speaking for Palestinians. Like not the whole world, I can say that, because you are speaking, you are supporting us, but we need more support from the world, especially the United Nations. The United Nations, all the resolutions and all the decisions they have, they have, don't have control in, on Israel to like do it they just you know 
make decisions and uh, they write what they want to write and they announce what they had decided but they can't do nothing for Israel. Why? Why? Cowards. Cowards. And because they, I think they have, they have their own, like, benefits from doing that. That's why. And because lately this world has no justice. No justice. That, so, so that's why we will keep We'll keep saying that we need justice. That's what we need. Justice for our people, freedom for our people, dignity for our people, right to return and to, to, to have our right to decide. Because we don't have the right even to decide. They decide for us. Muhammad ibn Saud, they decides for us. He says, this land is for Israel. So how come he's doing that? The, the problem that even the Arabic governments, they are helping the, Zion, the, the Zionists, and they are now friends for them. So we are condemned that, and we want everybody to stand against those who are helping the Zionists all the way, without even thinking. And I want to thank you so much, everybody, for coming today and supporting us. Justice is our demand. Justice is our demand. No peace on stolen land. No peace on stolen land. Justice is our demand. Justice is our demand. No peace on stolen land. No peace on stolen land. Justice is our demand. Justice is our demand. No peace on stolen land. No peace on stolen land. If you're just tuning in, this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance and Alternative News from the Nation's Capital. I'm your producer and host, Esther Averam. You've been listening to Voices from a Protest outside the Embassy of Israel in Washington, D.C., Sunday, April 8, 2018, to protest the massacre of Palestinians participating in the ongoing peaceful protests against Israel's repressive occupation. We'll be right back. year ago, millions of people participated in the March for Science here in D.C. or in hundreds of satellite events around the country and world. Participants told on the ground that evidence-based policies are under attack. One of the most moving presentations I heard last year was by my next guest, Dana Gold, Director of Education for the Government Accountability Project, who detailed the people, the scientists who have in many cases sacrificed their career and livelihood by being science whistleblowers and exposing serious threats to public health and safety, violations of law, gross mismanagement, abuse of authority, or censorship. This is a little of what she had to say. 
I get up in the morning because these brave truth tellers decided that they could not stay silent and were willing to take a risk and commit to their own scientific and professional integrity to blow the whistle. And science professionals, science whistleblowers are some of the most valuable because they are on the ground, first line of defense against censorship, environmental devastation, nuclear war. I mean, it is like we're talking big stuff here. So these are my heroes. And that was Dana Gold, Director of Education for the Government Accountability Project, speaking at last year's March for Science. I want to welcome Dana to talk about this year's March and the landscape she sees for scientists working now. Well, Dana, every week alarming news flows into my in-basket about the evisceration of staff at the Environmental Protection Agency and other agencies that are mandated to protect our food, water, and other natural resources. But I wanted you to give us an overview from your perspective of the impact of federal policies and actions on scientists and on having evidence-based policies. Esther, thanks so much for having me. This is such a, such a treat, and I'm really looking forward to the March uh, for Science again on Saturday, and I'm excited we get to do another teach-in. So it's so interesting. When I spoke last year, and I gave all of these examples of science whistleblowers and kind of the difficulty they have in speaking up for science and reprisal that often happens for any whistleblower, usually if they're revealing something really serious. You know, all those whistleblower examples I had, you know, they preceded this administration, right? So whistleblowing is something that's gone on for decades uh, that has changed the world, stopped unaccountable behavior, protected public health and safety, you know, really been the tool for democracy, making sure our checks and balances work, um, but of course at great cost to individuals. But again, that was, those, all those examples I gave, and I'm happy to talk more about those, were before this administration. You know something, I think people in this country have very short memories, so maybe you should just take a minute or two and give us a rundown on some of the things that have happened that scientists have basically blown the whistle on that have really saved us. Yeah, so I have like, you know, three good examples that I always, are so many, I think there's so many examples, but, you know, I, I did a lot of work, for instance, working with nuclear whistleblowers, engineers, quality insurance inspectors, scientists at nuclear weapons facilities who blew the whistle on unsafe conditions that could lead to Fukushima-like nuclear disasters. You know, without them speaking up, you know, we could be facing horrors that we can't even imagine, but because, you know, for instance, Walt Tamositis at the Hanford facility in Washington State, you know, a PhD engineer was able to say, you know, we have technical problems at this treatment plant, which is supposed to deal with 56 million gallons of radioactive waste that if it's, they're not fixed, we're going to have a big problem on our hands. You know, he was taken off the job, you know, basically, uh, you know, had to file a big lawsuit, um, you know, to get his job back, um, and other whistleblowers came forward emboldened by him because his disclosures were all validated by investigations, congressional hearings happened, that plant was shut down pending resolution of those technical concerns, um, and, you know, he, he, who knows what kind of disaster he prevented. You know, same thing we've had food whistleblowers who have blown the whistle on unsafe, unsanitary conditions in uh, peanut processing plants, for instance, who are charged with doing quality control and 
and said these samples are not meeting, you know, these are salmonella and, you know, infested samples, you know, we can't sell them and, you know, people are dying and getting sick and because whistleblowers spoke up uh, resulted in saving lives, biggest food recall in history. Um, so I just want to, just for our listeners, but because those examples that you gave, for example, the first one with the Hanford plant, that, uh, that facility is still, I think you said, the most polluted uh, facility in this hemisphere in terms of nuclear waste. And that's in Washington state. That's here in this country. That's right. 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 And then the second example you gave in terms of the peanut processing, remind us of what company that was and what happened. Yeah, so that was Peanut Corporation of America. And you may recall there were all these reports of people getting sick from salmonella poisoning and dying, actually, uh, because of ingesting tainted peanuts, salmonella-infested peanuts. And the company claimed it was just happening at our Georgia plant, but Ken Kendrick spoke up and said, no, no, I worked in that Texas plant. The conditions were filthy. There were rat feces and bird poop, um, you know, in the ceiling, and it would rain and it would come down right onto the peanuts and they were asking us to microwave the, the sampling sponges so they would pass quality control tests. And he said, no, no, I saw exactly what happened in that Texas plant. And so that Texas plant was shut down and the company went bankrupt and the top three executives actually were prosecuted and went to jail. I mean, that's unprecedented. And again, it was the largest food recall in history. And I think that was just in the last decade or something. I remember that. That was what year was that? Yeah, it was two. I want to say it was two thousand eight. I got to check on that, but I think right. it was half of my head it was two thousand eight. You know, and Ken, rather than getting a gold star, you know, he was you uh, really shunned in his you know small town Texas community in part because you know everybody lost their jobs. It was a company town, and they blamed Ken rather than, of course, the managers. So the the cost to a whistleblower professionally for doing the right thing it's so high, but it is so transformative, right? So mm-hmm. support. Supporting whistleblowers, but understanding the risks that they take and speaking out, especially in climates where they're holding the powerful accountable. It's just really important to understand more about whistleblowing and why it's so important and why these employees, you know, they could be any of us. Right. Right. Seeing something on the job. Nobody really grows up to plan to be a whistleblower. That's really not how it works. (laughs) Right. So, okay. So now I'm going to switch back to the present. You were, you were actually being very eloquent and I'm sorry for cutting you off, but you were talking about how the climate has changed even more, even though these things have been happening under many administrations, but we want to talk about really kind of what's happening now in terms of scientists and federal policies and agencies. Yeah, so one of the things that was so interesting that we saw, and it really drove a lot of my work for the past year, right after the inauguration, the administration put out these gag orders that people might remember on, uh, mostly in the environmental agencies, but uh, Department of Energy, um, EPA, I think DOI, um, Interior. What's DOI? Sorry, Department of Interior. A whole bunch of agencies put out gag orders, basically saying to employees, you cannot talk to the press you know, without getting pre-approval. And that created, that was like the first shot across the bow to create this chilling environment, I think, on scientists and people in federal agencies. Because not only are those gag orders illegal, and I can give you, and I want to give you like several more examples that just continue to happen almost on a weekly basis, it seems. But when that happened, you know, we had a journalist 
talked to us, she was at an environmental conference of some sort in January, again, like right after the inauguration, and a bunch of EPA scientists wouldn't talk to her because they were terrified. And she came to us saying, you know, can you help us? Can you help me <laughs> make them feel safe enough to talk to me? And, right. and so that was like the first inkling we thought, okay, we have a, we have a, I'm mean, not the first inkling, but this is a, like a problem that we need to figure out how to get resources in people's hands to understand the dynamics of what people's rights are to raise concerns and what their rights are to speak to the press, to speak to the public, to speak to Congress, to speak to public interest organizations, to speak internally about problems. Because these gag orders that we've seen, you know, when we see, you know, I don't know if you guys heard about the, you know, the CDC word ban that allegedly came out saying you can't use evidence based or fetus or transgender or a bunch of different words in budget documents. We've had a lot of different edicts come down, like Department of Energy had a, a poster up saying every leak makes us weak, basically trying to shut down and scare people from speaking, even though all of those gag orders are actually illegal because under the Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act, no gag order is enforceable. It has to have the magic words of saying your whistleblower rights supersede any bar on your speech. And none of these gag orders have had that. So, so they just create this chill environment, right, where people don't know their rights and they're scared that they're going to suffer reprisal from speaking out and exercising their right to speak out. I mean, these laws that exist to protect federal employees, a lot of employees, but particularly the federal employees who are the most embattled right now, they exist because Congress has unanimously approved, passed the Whistleblower Protection Act and the Whistleblower Protection Act, and because they recognize that employees are in the best position to see wrongdoing, to fight corruption, to make sure that compliance happens, right? Because they're the ones on the ground, and that we, they need to be able to speak up, and they need to sometimes not just speak up internally, but they need to go outside because they might suffer reprisal or nothing might be done if they report internally. So they have robust rights. Enforcement is a different issue. And of course, you know, that's the reality of, of a whistleblower, even if you have a right to speak, is different. And I, I acknowledge that. But right. I think the chilling effect that these gag orders have had on the workforce are morale busting. They actually undermine the implementation of rights that exist to protect all of us. Right. right. They, they, we want employees to speak up. Like that's what these laws do. And I think the, you know, and I, I actually write a lot also about this issue of conflating the term leaking versus whistleblowing because so many people think that, you know, whistleblowing is a crime because we think of national security whistleblowing, right, and intelligence whistleblowers. And that is different. They're releasing classified information, often to report a bigger crime. But that's different. Most whistleblowers are not dealing with national security. None of these science whistleblowers are. This is all public interest information, none of which is classified. They have rights to blow the whistle. It is not a crime. So it right. is a challenging environment to educate the workforce about their rights, let alone make them feel safe enough to exercise them. Well, you know, when you were uh, describing that, you know, it just occurred to me that that is so frightening, really, that we live in a society where people 
are frightened to tell the truth about something that would impact our basic safety. You know, you hear this term a whole lot and there's even an agency called Homeland Security. But what what is making us more insecure than something that could be a potential nuclear accident or endanger our food or endanger our water? And I want to know if if aside from just the censorship and the uh, how people being so intimidated not to speak, have you uh, observe any instances where this uh, curbing of freedom of speech is actually creating, you know, a danger? Or have you seen examples of where the public is not being made aware of dangers? That's a really good question, because it's kind of hard to prove a negative, because if you don't have people speaking out, right, you kind of, that's the problem, right? Because you kind of don't know what you don't know, but someone might who is too scared to speak. That's a tough situation. And in, in some ways, it's a, to your point about how scary it is, our Congress is broken, right? Our executive branch is broken, <laughs> right? Like things aren't really working. And the only thing that kind of gets the gears of democracy activated or when people, is truth, right? Or, or information about problems. And so, and it has to be really serious to get people motivated to overcome their fear often to say, I, I, am, I can't live with myself if I don't speak up. So that is really scary to me because in some ways the bar for willingness to speak up probably is high, higher than it's ever been. And that actually tracks the seriousness of the problems that might be disclosed, if that makes sense. So, you know, at the, at the same time, you know, we certainly have seen whistleblowers come forward, but fewer and many are trying to do it, you know, anonymously, right? They're trying to disclose information, you know, through different mechanisms, so through the press or through public interest organizations, rather than kind of voicing it internally, which most whistleblowers do. Most people raise concerns internally first, because they actually see the problem and they generally have confidence that something might be done about it, even though that is sometimes misplaced confidence. But so I, it's, a, I, it's a funny way to answer your question, but we have seen some people speak up very publicly and gotten a lot of support. Joel Clement is one of them. You know, he was the senior Department of Interior whistleblower who basically he'd been speaking very publicly about the effects of climate change on Alaska Native communities, and he was reassigned to collecting oil royalty checks. This is like in the summer, in June, in June, I think, June, July. And so he, you know, and he wrote a great op-ed in the Washington Post saying, I'm a whistleblower on the Trump administration. I have been reassigned essentially to this meaningless accounting job that I know nothing about. I'm a biologist who basically talks about the effects of climate change on mm -hmm. Alaska Native communities. And he filed a suit. So he, we were so happy about Joel saying, I am going to I don't have to leave my work. Like, I have rights that I'm going to exercise, and I'm going to not just engage in noisy exit or quiet exit, which is often what we're seeing, right? We're seeing people leave civil, like career civil servants leave because they can't bear, right, the tension of what they're seeing, but also can't bear speaking out. And so we were so glad that he decided to kind of speak publicly while staying in place and asserting his whistleblower rights, you know, with the um, Office of Special Counsel and under the Whistleblower Protection Act. He did end up resigning. So his case is pending, you know, and still proceeding, but he ended up leaving, you know, the Department of Interior. So we, there are some, a few public whistleblowers, but many more who are, I think, 
quiet and trying to just ride it out. And I think, you know, I worry like you do. I mean, I feel like we're in a race. Like, I don't know what we don't know. And I think that what is happening is terrifying. So the more we can have people speaking out, the, the more it supports more people speaking out, right? I mean, like the, the minute you get a success, more people come forward. And so to have, you know, people emboldened to say, I have to do this. It is for democracy. It's for like public safety. It's for science. It's for the environment. It's for the next generation. And just say, you know, that's better than keeping my head down. Well, I've run out of time, but I just definitely wanted to give people a heads up about this second March for Science, Saturday, April 14th, down here on the National Mall, starting at 9 a.m. in D.C., but also I think more than 200 sister or brother marches around the country and around the world. I've been speaking with Dana Gold, Director of Education for the Government Accountability Project, and she spoke at last year's March for Science, and she's also going to be speaking at this year's March for Science on Saturday morning. Thank you, Dana, for joining me. Thanks so much, Esther. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guests, Gerald Horn and Dana Gold. The music we played this hour included Strange Place for Snow by EST, Sunset by McCoy Tyner, and Shalala by the Ether Orchestra. Our theme song is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to all of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Averam. I'll be signing books at the Black Memorabilia Fine Art and Craft Show April 14th and 15th in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and at Sankofa Books and Video on April 28th. Thank you for tuning in. To everybody listening, keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>